0: Warbirds over Wanaka International Airshow this Easter celebrates 30 years since the very first event organised by the legendary Sir Tim Wallace. Sir Tim will be on hand once again to salute the amazing range of historic and modern warbirds lining up in Wanaka this Easter. The US Air Force is bringing the fast and noisy F-16 Fighting Falcon jets all the way from Japan. Plus the C-17 Globemaster. The RNZAF is also planning a big lineup for Wanaka, including the Boeing 757, displaying for the first time in 12 years. There'll be a mass formation display of 13 Harbards, plus all your crowd favourites like the Spitfire, Mustang, P 40, Yak 3, the Catalina, Avro Anson, Grumman Avenger, and all the way from the UK, and fresh from starring in the recent movie Dunkirk, the Bouchon ME 109. This promises to be the one Warbirds Over Wanaka air show. You will not want to miss. Tickets from Ticket Direct.
1: Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, we carry on with more recordings from the recent Wings Over New Zealand forum meet that was held at the Classic Flyers Museum on Sunday 4th of March. The following recording as of more of the guest speakers on the day. Mike Feist wants to get, have a very quick word. Hi, everyone. Nice to see you all here. Uh, As you're probably
2: uh, aware, I'm involved in the uh, restoration team on um, 2539 down there, and quite a few of you have been down to have a look at it. We're trying to raise money, as always, to help with the restoration of it, and I've produced a, um, a single sheet, and it's in an A4 picture frame, and it actually has a piece of the metal and a piece of the fabric from that aircraft. So if anybody's interested, I can make some more up, and uh, it's a donation, um, possibly $20 and above. So if you could help us out, you want one, get in touch with me, and uh, we'll produce them for you, and we can mail them to you if necessary.
1: Okay, thank you. Thanks, Mike. Um, I think everybody seems to be almost almost everyone's back, so we might as well get underway again uh, with our next speaker, which is... uh, the wonderful Brian Cox. And uh, Brian, as most of you will will know, uh, very recently uh, regained his license, and he's 93 years old. So he's the country's oldest pilot. And he's going to give us a little bit of a chat about that. And I think he's got a video to play as well. So please welcome Brian.
3: I don't think I've spoken to such a large crowd that I can remember, so... <laughs> anyway, um, although I've been asked to speak on the uh, recreational pilot licence, I guess most of you are more or less aware of it. It's a very simple thing, right at the bottom of the scale of pilot's licences, because it only requires a driver's medical. Not a, not a class one car, but a class two track driver, so I had to set that with my GP, which I managed to get through quite okay. And the other things I had to do was set PPL law because I haven't been near an aeroplane for about 24 years, so naturally things have changed in that time, so I had to set PPL law, which I managed to pass by one mark. I'll just show if anyone is sort of interested. I actually set my PPL by using a waypoint that's all in here Uh, mock exams, and there's actually 12 of them in there. They didn't cover the subject terribly well, they covered it enough just to give me 71 but... (laughs) Well, there's so many familiar faces here I can't possibly mention them all. I just mentioned Jim Bergman right in the front here. Jim was responsible for me getting an instructor rating in 1964 at the Auckland Flying School. I happened to be controlling at that stage in the control tower and his office and premises was just at the base of the tower. That, that was 1962 when I went there but 64 I did the instructor rating and I've got... Yes, I've actually got his name in this my first logbook. This is number one logbook, and I've got number twelve here as well. But I didn't bring the other ten. They're in the museum here. I had to get I had to get the last one out to put into my flying the other day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, throughout my flying, a major interest to me has been sort of aerobatics. For example, after three hours solo in a Tiger Moth, we were introduced to aerobatics. And I actually had books on how to fly, and that was an RAF Air Training Corps manual on how to fly a Tiger Moth. And I also had a commode, one of his early books about aircraft structure. And in, in that it mentioned how if you fly upside down, your, your flying wires become the landing wires and the landing wires become the flying wires. So when I asked my instructor to do an inverted spin, he wouldn't do it, but he hadn't read the book, so I did and it worked quite well. <laughs> <laughs> now I'll just cover my four years Um, wartime experience in terms of aerobatics. Well the Tiger Moth, looped at 90. Harvard, 180. The P-40 300 MPH and the Corsair, 300 knots. It was quite strange because the P-40 was the US Army Air Corps and the the Corsair was Navy. So we changed from MPH to knots in those two aircraft. just a matter of interest, I flew one, uh, 19 Tigers, 61 Harvards, 31 P 40s. In four and a half weeks, I did 64 hours in P 40s and 20 in and Harvards, all in four and a half weeks. Six, I've got my logbook here, I did six flights in one day. One of them was night, actually. Uh, and uh, say 31 P40s and uh, and two and a half years I flew 113 Corsairs, and they're all exactly the same, except that we had F4U's and FG1's, and FG1 they put a step in the inboard uh, flap, when you lowered it, you could put your foot into a step, but that's just for geriatrics like today. <laughs> Now, what else have I got to mention? Yes. Now, naturally, people say, "Well, why are you back flying?" sort of thing. Well, I mean, having been flying from 60, actually 63, to, to 90, 2018. I sort of tend to dream about flying quite a bit at night and sort of thought, well, oh, I know, but when people say, well, why have you come back to flying? Well, my retort to that is, well, why not? Because I can pass the medical and manage to pass the flight test, uh, which I've had the flight test on the birthday the other day and I hit the slipstream on the first steep turn, so he gave it to me. Actually now i'm going to because i've got a husky throat a bit i'm going to play just a 20-minute dvd which jim bergman i know will enjoy and quite a few others here who fly the cessna 152s now it was an eat chip promo on tv3 and so during the thing we eat, eat chips while we're doing the aerobatics but um um, the compere was a TV3 compere called Phil Coburn, Keegan Coburn, and he came up, but he came out without any food in him for breakfast and he got sick, or felt sick on the first flight. So I did another six flights and I put cameras on different parts of the 152, and the second part was the only one of the camera crew. And it's quite hilarious to hear his comments. I think he's never flown before at all. Anyway, so it's all on this DVD. It takes 20 minutes. And I'm sure that a number of you will. Well, anyway, I could say that I could title that DVD What I Used to Do in My Lunch hour because I did used to teach aerobatics in the lunch hour. So, <laughs> so if we can get this thing to go, push it in.
1: At this point, we've cut out the audio of that video, but you can actually watch it on the show page. So go to the Wings Over New Zealand show page for this episode, and you'll find the video.
3: Hi, it's Matt Jolly from WarbirdRadio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening, and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com.
1: Well, uh, our our next speaker has actually come here all the way from Singapore, isn't it? Matt? Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Yeah, I knew, I knew I'd get that wrong. <laughs> yeah. um, so we've actually got two, we've got two people here today who have come over from Australia, and we've got one from Hong Kong, and Matt McLaughlin is going to give us a, um, a bit of a reading from his excellent book, and um, a little bit of a talk as well. So here's Matt.
4: everybody. Thank you, Dave. I'm so pleased to be going after Brian Cox. <laughs> this might be a letdown. <laughs> How can I compete with that? Yes. Yeah, so um, good afternoon. My name is Matt McLaughlin. Um, for the past 23 years, I've been working as a pilot for Cathay Pacific Airways based in Hong Kong. Um started on the 747-400, uh, did 10 years on that. I then spent nine years as a captain on the Airbus A330 and A340, and I came across to the 777 uh, again as a captain about three years ago. So that's uh, what I, I do, sort of nine to five. I was born in Taronga. I grew up in Gisborne. I started my flying career in the Royal New Zealand Air Force uh, the year after I left high school. Um, A bout of glandular fever uh, and some other uh, shenanigans, Chapter 3, saw my RNZF career uh, quite short. After that I did the normal GA stuff, I returned back to uh, my hometown of Gisborne, um, finished off my CPL. Uh, twin rating, instrument rating, instructors rating, all that sort of stuff. This was the early 90s, and then New Zealand had just got rid of the F-27 friendship fleet, so there were quite a lot of very experienced uh, pilots floating around, snapping up the jobs that I was hoping to get myself. Um, So I wound up going to Papua New Guinea as a 22-year-old through a volunteer agency, so I went up there as a a missionary, effectively, uh, working as a volunteer, flying a plane for a mission station. I did that for a, a fairly short period of time and then just stayed in commercial aviation in New Guinea. I was a bush pilot up there for almost four years uh, and then joined uh, Calais Pacific uh, when I was uh, 25. Uh, in 2015, I published uh, my a flying memoir, which is for the most part about that three and a half, four years I spent in Papua New Guinea, um, bookended by a bit of RNZAF stuff and at the other end with my uh, Cathay experience. In 2017, uh, this book won a silver award um, in the Independent Publishers uh, Book Awards in New York, which was uh, wonderful, so I managed to get some time off work and went along to uh, pick up that award. Uh, It's been going well, uh, selling well. I can't retire from flying 777s just yet, live off the royalties, Um, but it's the whole whole experience from writing, um, which took about 10 years, uh, putting it all together, getting a team together of uh, editors, and book designers, and graphic artists, and people changing PDFs to EPUBs, and all the things you need to do when you're publishing a book has been, it was quite an experience. And obviously post-publishing, um, I get the honor of doing things like this, and I've been uh, in 20 or 30 magazines, and newspapers, and radio shows, and podcasts, and it's, it's been wonderful. So what I thought i to, uh, do today uh, was maybe just do a couple of quick readings. They're about seven, eight minutes each. So the first one is about the first time I saw a Papua New Guinea uh, bush airstrip. And the second one is a little bit about what it was like flying the 747-400 into the old airport in Hong Kong, uh, Kai Tak. The IGS approach, instrument guidance system, uh, one of the most famous approaches, I guess, for um, heavy metal. So I was was lucky I got to do that as well. We'll see if my my 47-and-a-half-year-old eyes can uh, cope with this light. Uh, Not very well. Okay, there might be some squinting. More than I remember my first solo in an RNZAF CT4B air trainer, more than I remember my first flight as the captain of a wide-body passenger jet, I remember the first time I experienced an approach and landing at a Papua New Guinea bush strip. It was Fane, a village airstrip air in the Guilalas, a section of the Owen Stanley Range to the north of Port Moresby. I was on my first training trip with Mac Lee soon after he arrived back from his holiday and I sat in the front left seat of his Cessna 206 Charlie Bravo Lima. We departed Moresby on a gin-clear morning and Mac had guided the aircraft from the right-hand seat, pointing the machine northeast towards a large inlet of mangroves along the coast, paralleling the soggy landmark called Galley Reach for 25 minutes, before turning up a river valley and plunging into the Owen Stanley Range. A few minutes later, level at 5,500 feet above sea level, having climbed from takeoff all the way out into the mountains, Amidst a jumble of alpine peaks, sheer ravines and thickly wooded slopes, Mac pointed beneath us to our destination. I looked down, but there was nothing there, certainly nothing that my brain registered as an airstrip. It's right there, exclaimed Mac, we're down one for landing now. See the village and the smoke and the landing strip on the side of the hill? I saw it and my stomach tightened. We can't land there, it's a scratch of dirt on the side of a mountain. I was about to experience the Pilatus-Porter scene from Air America, for real. Issues of the airstrip's slope and extreme shortness aside, Fane was located in a place where passenger airplanes simply should not be operating. The airstrip was in a cul-de-sac of tight valleys, a small C-shaped basin surrounded by 8,000 foot high peaks. A spiderweb of ridge lines fanned upwards from the valley floor, reaching up to the sky, looming over the cramped basin like the forward pack of a titanic rugby team. The skidmark that was Farnay's landing ground stood bare at 4,500 feet above sea level on the upward slope of one of these ridges, a grassy line carved out of the hillside, bordered by white cone markers, angling up to a small cluster of huts and shacks. As Mac turned on to final approach to land on the skidmark, it bobbed in the windscreen like the posted stamp-sized landing deck of an aircraft carrier on the high seas. I still could not believe he was serious about landing here. He's joking, right? We're air transport pilots, not bloody top-dressing pilots. There was a total absence of the normal visual cues for an approach and landing. The Cessna flew suspended over a void, with a gut-wrenching 1,000-foot drop to the unforgiving river gorge below. This is not normal. With concentrated and focused precision, Mac held the Cessna's speed at a firm 65 knots, modifying the power setting to maintain a constant approach angle to the end of the 12% sloping airstrip, holding the threshold steady in the same point on the aircraft's windscreen. Every cell in my being screamed, we are going to crash, but Mac's calm demeanour indicated that, to him at least, this experience was completely normal. As the end of the airstrip passed under us, Mac didn't so much land as arrive, It was rough and raw and agricultural. Landing on a steeply sloping airstrip required a totally unique flare flare technique. This is going to be teaching you to suck eggs for some of you. The flare is the last part of the landing where the pilot pulls back on the controls to transition from the nose down approach attitude to the nose high landing attitude. In a normal landing, this attitude is held and the aircraft allowed to settle onto the runway. Mag left his flare very late, and it seemed like we would impact the end of the airstrip in the approach attitude. At the last millisecond, he simultaneously cut the power and raised the Cessna's nose. Timing has moved perfectly, so the nose got to its highest point precisely as the main wheels touched down firmly in the grass and dirt at the airstrip's threshold. The storm warning horn cried out at the same moment. Holy shit, this guy's good. He's crazy, but he's good. His technique enabled him to transition the Cessna from airborne to earthbound in one fluid movement. And although a risky and abrupt movement, a manoeuvre rather, it gave him great control, allowing him to throw the aircraft on the deck precisely where he wanted it. I was soon to learn this was the key to ops into the short airstrips, putting the machine on the ground right at the airstrip threshold. Mac was to hammer this into me as my training progressed, a PNG bush pilot had to touch down and beam the first cone marker, land any f- later further into the strip and you might not have sufficient runway remaining to stop. The aircraft rode roughly up the undulating surface, the undercarriage bouncing and crunching beneath us, adding power to hold the momentum and get us up to the parking bay at the top of the steep slope. What an incredible display of control and precision flying. I was really impressed and humbled and realised my confidence in my own flying background might be a little bit overblown. I was 21 years old and I had 467 hours in my logbook. I held a New Zealand CPL, a twin engine aircraft endorsement, an instrument rating, I was a qualified instructor. My all-important ab initio hours had been at the hands of the RNZAF, New Zealand's preeminent pilot training establishment. Given this background, prior to that first PNG bush strip arrival, I felt like I was well on my way to becoming an accomplished pilot. Seeing Mac's approach and landing um, served as a wake-up call. It was very clear that Papua New Guinea was going to demand pure flying skill, a heat-of-the-moment decision-making and airmanship of the highest order. It didn't matter what I had done before, the hours padding my logbook, the aircraft types I'd flown, mastering PNG bush flying was going to be like learning to fly all over again. But there was much more to this bush flying game than just stick and rudder skills. I did as Mag did, exiting, exiting the aircraft at the top of the strip. We were instantly mobbed by villagers, small dark people with suspicious eyes and expressionless faces. I felt like I was on the set of The Empire Strikes Back filming an Ewok supply drop. Their harmless appearance belied their fearsome reputation. The Australian colonial colonial government considered the tribes of the Guilalas uncontrollable until the 1970s. Until then, their contact with Western culture was characterised by resistance to the law, armed clashes, murder and contempt for sentences handed out by the courts. A European observer who lived amongst the Guilala natives for two years wrote in a 1977 research paper that they were obsessed with power and aggression and exhibited hatred and violence and a fierce joy in humiliating and destroying their enemies. Mac moved to the Cessna's starboard cargo door and supervised the unloading of the freight, some dry goods for a local trade store. This was my first introduction to PNG's lingua franca, Pigeon English, also called Tok Pitsin. A tiny fuzzy headed man with bright eyes, wearing a faded blue t-shirt that commemorated, bizarrely, born in the USA tour Springsteen 84, introduced himself. belong me diva? he said softly. Mr Deva appeared to be the trade store owner, and he and Mac huddled over Mac's receipt book as other villagers moved boxes into piles under the aircraft's wing. Mac gestured at, gestured at one of the piles, Dispela cargo belong you, now you pela must buy em dinau. It was easy enough to get the gist of what was being said in this charming lyrical language. Dinao meant debt. Mac was saying, this is your cargo, you've got to pay for it. But seeing Mac communicate this way, I realised that I too would have to master pigeon if I was ever to be sent solo in the mountain airstrips. Ouch! I felt a sharp prick on the back of my leg and turned to see a group of snotty-nosed village kids crowded behind me. One of the dusky munchkins had just plucked a hair out of the back of my thigh. His face wide with a toothy grin, he pinballed through the tight crowd and disappeared down a track behind the airstrip. Before I could react, Mac laughed and explained that most of these bush piccaninnies, children, had limited or no contact with white-skinned, fair-haired Europeans, and compared to them and to Mac, I was very hairy. Curiosity had got the better of my attacker and he had pulled on my leg here just to see what would happen. Now another man stood with Mac under the wing, marshalling bystanders with an outstretched arm, directing them away from the aircraft with a flick of a clipboard like he was shooing flies. He had an air of authority and was clearly a big man in the village. His name was Alex Goosey. He sported a neatly trimmed Tom Selleck magnum pi moustache and a smart red shirt with a logo and lettering prominent over the left breast pocket, Trans New Guinea Airways. I was flying for Air I watched him pass money to Mac before escorting four villagers and their baggage onto the back of our Cessna. I realised he was a double agent, playing both sides, transferring TNA's passengers, Trans New Guinea Airways' passengers, onto our flight, no doubt carrying out the same deception in the other direction too. This was priceless, a bit of cloak and dagger in the wilds of Papua New Guinea. A delightful line attributed to Franklin D. Roosevelt immediately came to mind. He may be a bastard, but he's our bastard. The The loading and negotiating complete, I climbed back into the aircraft's cockpit with Mac. The doors closed, the passengers strapped in, Pass him seat not can smoke balabalos. close to now and by Now go Port Mosby. And I followed him through his checklist as he fired up the engine and set the flaps and trim wheel for departure. The cabin was ripe with an acrid smoky scent, one I was to become very familiar with. Everything in these mountain communities, including the people, was infused with smoke from the open cooking fires of traditional wood material bush material homes. I looked back to check that all was secure in the cabin before takeoff, right into the eyes of the Gwilala woman seated behind my right shoulder. She was clearly very excited to be on board and grinned at me through rotten, red-stained teeth. Her, unquest- her questionable, rather, oral hygiene was the byproduct of chewing betel nut, known locally as buai, a mild stimulant and nationwide addiction. Now Mac demonstrated the bush strip short field takeoff technique. He taxied to the top of the airstrip, the point where the level parking bay met Farnay's 12% downslope and brought the aircraft to a firm stop with the foot brakes. Here he ran the engine up to full power, checking the temperature and pressure gauges in the cockpit before departure. The Cessna strained against the brakes like a leashed fighting dog, threatening you to burst free and careen down the precipitous slope at any second. You can tell that the 206 was the most powerful aeroplane I'd flown up to that point. <laughs> it's a bit different now. Wonderful machine. Um, with the control column pulled all the way back into his chest, Mac let her go. The aircraft accelerated nose-high down the steep strip—a 1,600-kilogram winged slingshot. The undercarriage echoing the same bangs and, cr- as, and crunches as when we'd landed. The machine breaking free from the surly bonds of earth after a ridiculously short ground roll. As the Cessna transitioned to flight, Mac eased forward on the control column, allowing a build-up of airspeed, and the ground fell away beneath us as we catapulted out into the void of the. End of Farnese strip. What a rush! So that was my first uh, bush strip experience. Um, I spent three and a half years there. Subsequent to getting uh, checked out, and I flew um, uh, two and a half thousand hours there, and I and that was three thousand four hundred sectors. So um, you know, an average day would be four or five sectors. And the most I ever did was um, sorry, Brian, uh, nineteen. 19 flights, a single pilot and a twin otter in the southern highlands of New Guinea, and you land and someone in the pub says Oh, where did you go today, Matt? And you say, I can't remember. I remember, the, I remember this morning, and we landed before it got dark, but I don't remember the rest. Um, right, so the last bit is just a um, quick uh, reading about flying the 747 at Kai and then we should have maybe five or ten minutes left for questions if anyone uh, has any questions about anything. So this is, um, I'm now in Hong Kong, I'm, I'm 27. In any flying career, there are a few exceptional moments that stand out. My first officer conversion course gave me perhaps the best day of my flying career, base training. This was sandwiched between the simulator sessions and the line flying training sectors. Base training is when a trainee flies circuits in the actual machine rather than just in the simulator circuits in a 747-400. I turned up with fellow trainee, uh, First Officer Rod Proven at the airline's flight planning and briefing room at Hong Kong's Kai Tak Airport and met with base training captain Brian King, who was to run the sortie. He discussed with us what the session would involve and we took a crew bus out to a remote parking bay on the aircraft or the airport's South Apron and climbed up the stairs to our waiting aircraft Tower Registration Hotel Oscar Whiskey. The last time I'd fly a training mission like this with an empty aeroplane was during my Dornia 228 command training with Henry Goines in Port Moresby. Now here I was about to launch in an empty 387 seat, 270 tonne Boeing 747-400, the queen of the skies, an aircraft I'd always dreamed of flying. It was almost inconceivable The training department of one of the world's most admired airlines was saying to us, here's a 200 million US dollar jet, take it out for a few laps and get comfortable. (laughs) Incredible. We flipped a coin and Rod won the toss and elected to fly first. He and Brian uh, took the aircraft from Hong Kong to Shenzhen, an international airport on the shores of the Pearl River River Delta, a short 27 nautical mile hop from Hong Kong, and Rod flew 12 or so circuits while I sat in one of the uh, cockpit jump seats. Once Rod's training was done, it was my turn. I had experienced an identical flight profile on the flight sim a few days earlier, so I was well prepared and rearing to go. I was strapped into the right-hand seat and listened to Brian's instructions as we configured the aircraft for my first takeoff. Checklist complete and clearance from the tower received. Brian stood the thrust levers up to 60%, allowed the engines to stabilize, and then hit the TOGA button to engage the autothrottle. The immediate, immediate acceleration rate as the throttles moved forward to max thrust was incredible, like a kick in the pants, with the massive aircraft launching down the runway like a wild beast and the engines spooling up in a roaring crescendo like the starship Enterprise punching through to warp speed. Each of the four mighty Rolls-Royce RB211-524G engines were producing 58,000 pounds of thrust. To put this into perspective, the Queen of the Skies was putting out roughly the same amount of thrust as 250 Cessna 206 Stationaires, the six-seater from my PNG bush flying days. Manhandling an empty 747-400 with all that thrust and inertia around a 1,500-foot AGL circuit pattern was like, obviously, riding a wild rodeo bull. and my first circuit was a bit ropey. I settled in pretty quickly, though, and soon found that the aircraft was easier to fly than the simulator perhaps because there was so much more immediate sensory feedback and a much wider field of view out the cockpit windows than the 180-degree screens in the Boeing simulator. The aircraft reminded me of the Twin Otter. It was heavy on the ailerons and needed firm and positive control. The trickiest thing to master was the landing technique. This was hardly surprising as the perspective from the flight deck was totally different to anything I'd ever experienced. The 747 cockpit perched on the top deck of the huge aircraft placed the pilot a whopping 8.7 metres, 28.5 feet, above the runway. After a few circuits, I got the hang of it, holding the approach descent rate until the audible 60-foot call from the radio altimeter system starting to ease back on the stick and commence a flare just before the 30-foot call and bringing the thrust levers to idle at the 10-foot call. If you got all of that right, uh, she'd gently rumble onto the runway, no trouble at all. Brian was happy with my progress but also wanted to make sure I could consistently land the jet on the same spot in the runway, the aim point. The standard landing zone or aim point is a pair of white painted rectangles 1,300 feet in from the runway threshold. All ICAO and FAA certified runways have these markings or something similar. Just. Past them, this it gets a bit un- un-PC here. I apologise. Uh, just past them, there is normally a large, irregular, black triangular patch on the tarmac formed by rubber deposits from the multitude of aircraft wheels that have landed in the zone. Brian, I'll blame Brian. It's in my book, but he said it. Uh, Brian called the dark patch the beaver and told me to make this my aim point. Once on my first attempt I missed the beaver, flaring late and floating 2,000 feet down the runway before the 16 main wheels rumbled onto the deck. On my next attempt I was looking good, descending through the last couple of hundred feet before touchdown, making subtle adjustments to the pitch, attitude to hold the approach angle and small corrections on the throttle to hold the correct approach speed. Brian's voice came across loud and clear in my headset. That's it Matt, Matt aim for the beaver. After landing in the right spot and having him take control, standing the power levers to take off thrusts and setting the flaps and elevator trim wheel for a touch-and-go, it was impossible to stifle a smile as the headset crackled with a complimentary purr. Nice beaver. I took over and eased back on the control column, launching the Boeing into the air again, and off we went for another lap. I spent an hour flying circuits onto Shenzhen's runway 15, some at low level, some with flight directors on, some on raw data, some even with one engine and operative uh, simulation. Just when I thought I could, it couldn't get any better, uh, Brian told me I could fly the jet back to Hong Kong and shoot the IGS approach for Runway 13 to conclude the session. This was like telling a rookie pro surfer they'd been selected to compete at the Banzai Pipeline, or an amateur golfer they'd been chosen to tee off at St Andrews. The IGS approach at Hong Kong's old airport was the ultimate test for any airline aviator. It was pure pilot nirvana. At the time, Hong Kong's IGS, which stands for Instrument Guidance System, approach for runway 13 was probably the world's most famous international airport arrival procedure. It began with an intercept of the localizer and glide slope beam at four and a half thousand feet over the northern tip of Lantau Island near Discovery Bay. This gave precision guidance to aircraft all the way down to the minimum altitude of 675 feet over the crowded suburb of Kowloon City, at which point the tricky bit began. From here pilots had to make a tight visual right-hand turn through 47 degrees to avoid a collision with Lion Rock and the hills of the Ma On Shan Country Park while continuing the descent and line up on extremely short final at about 150 feet above the deck, for a landing onto Hong Kong's relatively short runway, an 8,000 foot sliver of uh, tarmac jutting out into the harbour. This quirky, low-level dogleg was known as the checkerboard turn, as there was a large red and white checkerboard signboard, plastered onto the side of a hill near the Lok Fu Cemetery, acting as a visual aid to identify the correct turning in point. Passengers called the hair-raising last-minute manoeuvre the kai heart attack, a turn so low that laundry on the washing lines of the Cheek-by-Jowl Kahloon tenement buildings was clearly visible from the starboard cabin windows as the aircraft swooped in over the packed cityscape. Some passengers swore they could see the flickering TV screens inside individual apartments as their aircraft barreled past in frightening proximity. Aviation enthusiasts drooled over this approach with its thrilling spectacle of large aircraft in steep bank turns at low altitude over the city, and it was like crack cocaine to the camera-wielding addicts of the global plane-spotting fraternity. AFALPA, the international association representing airline pilots, saw the airport in a slightly different light. Kai Tak had been placed on its Black Star list of dangerous airports due to its tricky topography and challenging low-level turn. And for most airlines, it was a captain-only approach. Not so for Cathay Pacific. It was our home port and there were no restrictions on co-pilots operating the aircraft. I was fortunate to manhandle the 747 around the IGS approach many times before Kai closed and we moved to Hong, Kang- Hong Kong's new Lap Kok Airport on Lantau Island in 1998. If the 747 reminded me of my favourite aeroplane, the Twin Otter, then the IGS reminded me of Papua New Guinea bush flying. It was a white-knuckle adrenaline-fest every time, especially so in typhoon season and in strong crosswinds when it became extremely challenging. If the reader ever, if the reader, if you guys have ever had the pleasure to arrive in Hong Kong during the Kai Tak era, you'll be very familiar with one other memorable feature of the airport. In the 1988 TV series Noble House, based on the James Clavell book of the same name, a character arrives at Kai Tak. What's that smell? he asks. The host replies with an all-knowing smile. Oh, that's Hong Kong's very own. That's the smell of money. It's a canny bit of screenwriting, summing up Hong Kong's colonial era status as a living, breathing, wheeling, dealing embodiment of Deng Xiaoping's famous catchphrase to get rich is glorious. Kai Tak did have a signature scent, but its pungent reality was somewhat different to Clavel's fiction. Immediately after landing, passengers were overwhelmed with the odour from the oily waters of the Kuntong Tong Typhoon Shelter and Nulla, a sewage choked waterway on the northeastern side of the runway. It was not pleasant. There's a famous anecdote about this Hong Kong style assault on the senses involving Hollywood, legendary Hollywood actor and comedian Bob Hope. The story goes that Hope, on his first visit to Hong Kong, was exiting the aircraft down the stairs at a remote bay when he noticed the smell. He turned to his travelling companion, his nose wrinkled up in disgust, and asked the inevitable question, what is that smell? Hope's associate replied, that's shit Bob, that's shit. Bob Hope said, I know, but what have they done to it? So, I think we've got a few minutes, Dave, Uh, if anyone's got any questions about KaiTac or 747s or PNG bush flying or writing books or anything else, I'd be very happy to answer your questions.
5: Flying the 747, what was your previous large aircraft... Right.
4: Yes, yes, Um, so I hadn't flown anything big, inverted commas, so, uh, New- so I went from Papua New Guinea straight to Cathay Pacific um, So, but I was a second officer for two years so when I arrived I'd been a captain on a Dornier 228 which they had here years ago with Transair if anyone remembers the Dornier 228, ugly on the ground beautiful in the air, so that's like a 19 seat turboprop, two crew thing and I did a lot of flying in the Twin Otter, mostly single pilot and then joined Cathay with about 3,000 hours and then I was a second officer for just under two years and then did a Another full conversion on the same type to be a co-pilot, which I did for about another eight years before I did my command. Yeah. So back then, uh, because of the second officer stream, as long as you had more than about 2,000 hours, you didn't you didn't have to have any um, you know heavy experience. And based on what I know, uh, or what I, certainly my my view of it is that. It's harder to fly a Cessna 185 on a gusty day out of Taronga than it is to fly a 777 when you're getting radar vectors into New York JFK. That's my that's my take on it. Yeah, if I can do it, anyone anyone can do it.
5: Some odd the mistakes. Yeah, that's true,
0: yes, yeah, yeah, Yeah,
4: that's true. I had lived in Hong Kong for many years and i would always enjoyed, like so
5: many people, being in those canyons of buildings and watching the aircraft on... The yes. Side. Right, it was
4: stunning, wasn't it? And I
5: was fortunate to be there when the first 747 landed in Hong And I made a point of going through the area with a good uniform. And I can assure you on that day there were thousands of people pouring along roads on foot, yes. trying to get to a good spot. I bet.
4: Was that late, uh, first 747 or the first 747? The four, first 747. 747. Oh, right. Atlanta, oh, wow. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I can imagine. Um, it's a great shame that we lost it in a way. I mean, it made sense to, to move the airport yeah. further away from the city and they need more space. And you know, It was only an 8,000, 8, foot mm-hmm. runway, so it was fairly limited. You certainly couldn't get A380s and things in there, so they had to move it. But it's a shame. We lost a lot. Hong Kong lost a bit of its aviation soul uh, in 98 when we moved.
5: The, the view of so many people was that they were familiar with DTH and 707. Yes.
4: Going into and, and, of course, the Convair
5: 880. You know, yes. Yes. And uh, then to think that something as large as a 747 could get in there through that canyon yeah.
4: was just unbelievable. Probably the way that people felt when they saw their first 380 getting pulled around. So the same sort of thing: 747 to 380, conveyor to 747. Yeah. The 747s I mean, are on their way out, aren't they? Uh, we got rid of all of the passenger uh, our passenger fleet. I think we must have had 50 or 60 of them uh, towards the end. We've only kept the, the freighters, the, the Dash 8s, which has got a new wing and new engines. Um, I wouldn't want to pay the fuel bill, that's for sure. Four big donks on that thing. But it's a beautiful machine and lovely to fly. Really, really wonderful. Yes, I, I would agree with that. I had a sort of a, a Facebook fight, uh, avoid those, um, with a friend of mine in Hong Kong who was flying a... He was with the Royal Air Force flying, I think it was a VC-10, and he was, oh, that's the Queen of the Skies. And I said, I'm pretty sure. You Google it and see what comes up. I think the internet knows. But, <laughs> you know, we can all have our own Queen of the Skies, can't we? Yeah, I'm not, I won't fight with anyone. Sorry, there's someone here. Yes.
5: Paul
3: Moresby, first one to
5: the flights into the forest. Yes. Um, had you thought
4: then that perhaps a bit of flying in a fletcher would have helped you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, a bit of flying in a fletcher would have helped a lot, yes. So I, I I describe it as, yeah, and I haven't done any top dressing, but um, actually I did a BFR two days ago in a chipmunk out of Ardmore, and I didn't realise, uh, because I've been away from New Zealand since 1992, I didn't realise how many uh, top dressing strips there are. and I And I looked at the top dressing strip, and the instructor, who's not a bush pilot by any Stretch of the imagination, was, oh, well, you know, I guess you could go in there if you had to, and I'm thinking, let's go in there now, uh, because it's, it's like a perfect PNG strip, because the grass has been mowed, and there's no one trying to beat you up, or there's no rocks in the windsock. This is a true story. They, the villagers, if they're really desperate to get you, to get you in, because the, the wife, the girlfriend, the, the trade store goods, the, the fresh whatever it is they needed was on board, if the weather was horrible, especially if there was a big tailwind, which was common after lunch, the windsock would be pointing straight down. It's okay, boss. You can come in, Musky worry, It's no problem. And the 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 smoke from the village fires is going, you know, twenty knot tailwind on your four hundred fifty metre long strip, and the windsocks very suspiciously pointing down. So that would have helped. Um, And in my daydreams of doing other things other than sitting in the cockpit of a triple seven, I um I would love to maybe tick that box one day and do a do a rating. Are you a are you a top dressing man? Um, not, not too bad. No, I mean the, the the good thing about flying in the tropics was, yes, the weather was horrendous. Uh, you had the um, uh, is it the catabatic winds, the downslope winds early in the morning, turning upslope in the afternoon, but the. The horrible weather was always the same, so you, you literally could, it's a cliche, you could say okay at two o'clock this valley is going to be shite because that 40,000 foot CB is going to build up over X air strip and I know it should extend out to about so and so, so and so airstrip, so the weather was awful but it was predictable in its awfulness, so the key was um, good route training and, and just knowing where you were at all times and you could still get the job done. Um, but you better hope that you you've got good um, you know you're good at reading a map and you know where you are at all times. This is pre GPS as well. There's no nav aids. There's no ATC. Um, so you could you could get the job done, but there were some caveats. And training was the key, I suppose. I was lucky. How was your first flight in command in one of those strips? Um, I actually don't remember that, Um, I suspect it might have been a little bit like the first time I got launched in a RNZAF CT4B, and I still had a conversation with the bloke who who wasn't sitting next to me anymore, so I might have been verbalising things a bit more than usual, Um, but my my boss, who was a Chinese-Australian guy with some New Guinea links, um, was very, very thorough, and so I think I was definitely ready. I mean, some people turn up in New Guinea and got checked out on a Sunday, and and I talk about this in the book, and they were dead on the Thursday because their training was, you know, sorry, they got checked out in three days, and, you know, a week later they're dead. So we lost 10% of their airplanes every year, and there was a fatal crash every month uh, when I was there for three and a half years or so. So a lot of people were going in, mostly controlled flight into terrain, but I think... I didn't do four sectors, I think I did twenty or thirty or forty sectors in a two oh six before he let me loose. So high level, low level, you know, the normal way, the the back door way, um, he- heavy weight, you know, sometimes light, most mostly heavy, slash overloaded, don't tell uh PNG CAA. It's amazing what a, a two oh six will carry. Yeah. Yeah, it's just if it taxis it'll fly. I didn't say that, but that's actually true. <laughs> When the thrust line comes up, and the tail comes off, uh, your your CFG is, I I think it's within limits, in New Guinea anyway, and of course we're taking off from downhill slopes, so you've got that massive um, uh, potential energy uh, gain, and the chart, you couldn't use the charts anyway, to sort of go off on a tangent, you couldn't. Couldn't sit there with your whiz wheel saying, oh, so I think I'm good today, because you're, you're over here somewhere. Because you're at ISA plus 20, and you're, you know, the highest strip I went into was 7,100 feet above sea level. You know, it's 33 degrees on the coast. Um, it's humi- humidity. Most of the charts don't take that into account, and they, they should, because that obviously reduces your performance. So, yeah, you, what you, you knew what you could carry based on what your chief pilot told you you could carry. So, okay, mate, out of here, you can carry three passengers and no more, or you'll scare yourself. And one day, when I was a bit younger and cockier, I thought, well, I reckon I could squeeze another one on. And then you might hit sit the fence with a storm warning, you know, warning going as you fall a thousand feet off the end of the valley. And you say, that guy knew what he was talking about. I should have, you know, one less next time. Yes. Scary stuff. So, yeah, what was it like the first time? Uh, It was okay, but I actually scared myself later, which is probably normal. I think when I started getting around 1,000, 1,500 hours, that's when I really started landing with my hands shaking and having little PTSD issues later when, you know, friends were killed. And that chap who checked me out, he was killed. My flatmate was killed. It was, yeah, very, very traumatic. But, you know, at the same time, the flying was wonderful. You know, real contrast there. Exciting, but you might get killed. But when you're young and you're trying to, you know, build up your logbook so you can go and fly a big shiny jet somewhere, it's amazing what you put up with. But I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was good. Yes, Dave. Oh yes. So I, um, I went a long time without flying um, what I call real aeroplanes. So um, lighties and things. I, I did. I went. So I was in Hong Kong '95. I didn't start flying again until about 2002, I think 2003, and they got my New Zealand CPL current again, uh, and I had a share with um, uh, when when this. Was built. I met Andrew Gormley, and then we, we were the, some of the guys that started up the Yak 718 syndicate very early on. So, um, yes, yeah, so I started getting back into the Yak flying and uh, got my Seacat cat running again and uh, just love it. I love the small stuff, the, the, the real stuff. And I've been commuting between Hong Kong and Auckland for about three years and I rejoined Warbirds, and I've got a share in a chipmunk there, and I've got a share in another airplane down south, and that's, that's a real treat. Yeah, so the BFR two days ago and the Chipmunk. I'll, I'll sit down and talk about that rather than talk about flying sevens because it's, you know, so much fun, really, really good. But I can't have one without the other, which I suppose we're, a lot of us might be in that situation. One, one pays for the other, doesn't it? But the GA in New Zealand is, is alive and well, and I think the LSA, like what Brian's doing, is probably um, helping keep things alive from what I can see. Mm. There might be some CAA people here, so I'll I'll, keep, I'll be nice. All right. Any other questions before I wrap up? Great. Thanks for your time. I just wrapped up.
0: Hi, this is Peter Johnson from aerospace radio station Extended, and we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's he's been something of of an unsung hero of the American space programme, outside those who have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. Some people will call you mad. Some people will call you heroes. uh, uh, And everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's it's an amazing project to, to pull together from, literally, from scratch. And
5: views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure.
0: So why not give us a listen? If you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry, come over and give us a visit aviation hyphen extended dot and remember there's no e at the beginning of extended
1: extended <laughs> Well, our next speaker is uh, John Matheson, who was a Skyhawk pilot and number two squadron commander. So, uh, please welcome John.
2: All right, um, I'll get into it so we don't run over time. Uh, My name's John Matheson, and uh, I had uh, 20 years in the air force. uh, It began in 1974 and uh, finished in uh, 98. Those maths don't quite add up because I went to the airline at one stage there for a bit. But uh, I was fortunate enough to have uh, three tours on the Skyhawk, and accumulated, uh, hi Wayne, uh, uh, 1,750 hours altogether. So. I sort of in the top ten of uh, ended up in the top ten of sort of A4 guys, uh, and my last tour there is um, as was mentioned is uh, I was on the uh, as CO2 squadron. So uh, what I've been asked to talk about is that a- the A4 and uh, my time at two squadron or two squadron in general, and I might just uh, talk about the air combat force as well because it's um, you know it's quite a topical thing. I think it's a natural question when you start talking about that capability that we now don't have. What happened to that? Uh, so, uh, Gabriel. Uh, so, um, the A4, uh, basically, you can talk about it in two dif- distinct phases. There's the pre Kahu phase of the Skyhawk and the post Kahu. So, I'm quite glad that Diesel's has already talked about the actual Kahu upgrade, especially from the engineering side. So, I'll, I'll focus what I'm talking about more about uh, the capability uh, of those two. Different uh, airplanes and the uh, and the tactics that were used. I think that's going to be of interest to you. Uh, and then we'll talk about two squadron a, a bit as well. Um, so back in uh, the late 60s, the uh, the government at the time uh, had to um, look at a replacement for the Canberra. And the Vampire, and uh, they, they had a look at a number of different options. The Australians were pushing the Mirage uh, because they were building Mirages, and they had Mirages in Australia. So that was the well, there was quite a bit of political pressure coming on to get the Mirage. And um, uh, but the Air Force, uh, remember that the Vietnam War was running, um, their favoured uh, option was the F4. Uh, and uh, in contention was also the A-4. So um, it basically it came down to, they were given a budget of $20 million uh, to uh, to go out and get some, some new fighters. And that amounted to seven F-4s or 14 A-4s. So ultimately we got the A-4 and nobody knew much about the A-4 because it was a Navy aeroplane. Um, anyway, uh, 14 A-4s duly acquired. Uh, so we had four uh, T A4s and, and ten single-seat A4s were uh, were purchased and and turned up. So, the aeroplane back then was, um, had a fixed gun sight, uh, you just put a different depression in for different uh, weapons profiles, uh, and that was your lot. Uh, we had Mark 81, Mark 82, so 250 pound, 800 pound, um, conventionally conventional guided bombs. Uh, some rockets, uh, and you'll see all this stuff in the, uh, in the museum actually down, downstairs, there's a 2.75 inch rockets um, and the 5 inch Zuni. Uh, which was theoretically the ship anti-shipping weapon, uh, and um, the AIM-9G. So, um, a no off sight capability. It was just a, a, a strict boresight-only uh, heat-seeking missile, um, primarily for air defence, um, you know, to defend yourself, and the 20 mm millim- 20 millimetre cannon. So that was kind of the the conventional armament of of an A4. The thing about an A4, it was uh, quite small, so 27-foot wingspan, um, very agile. Uh, It could go a lot faster than the aeroplanes we'd had at that point, you know, the Canberra and Vampire. So uh, it could get along at sort of 450 knots. Um, So um, a bit like Matt uh, was talking about, it was basically, there was no nav attack system. It was uh, just a map and time and heading uh, is how you found the target. And um, uh, uh, and the airplane uh, was hard to see. there was another thing. Tactics at the time were basically low-level tactics. So it was low level in, into the target area, low level out, uh, and essentially to defeat the surface to any surface-to-air missile threat or um, small arms threat. So that was pretty much how we operated the aeroplane. Um, basically, Most of it was low flying. A lot of our profiles could be high, low, high um, to extend the range. And the aeroplane did have quite good range and quite good legs because the wing was full of fuel, um, unlike sort of modern fighters where there's no fuel in the wing. Um, so, and of course it had the air refueling capability. Uh, which was um, very, um, very good in as a force multiplier. And at one stage uh, in the 80s, um, we, the aeroplanes were deployed to Hawaii um, using uh, Marine Corps KC-130s to get them out of Nandi to Kwajalein and from Kwajalein to Hawaii. So um, yeah, it was quite a good capability back in the day. So then, uh, mid uh, mid 80s, uh, there's uh, correction in the round about 86. They started thinking about re- re- replacing the airplane, and of course, in 84, the uh, the Aussies had lost their carrier, and they had 10 A4Gs for sale, and uh, we were the the obvious candidate. So our 14 Skyhooks had lost a one or two by then. Um, were added to by the 10. Uh, Australian Navy one, so we ended up with, um, with 10 A4Gs, uh, which we then converted, Des will, if you want to know more about that, Dez will tell you about the G to K conversion that went on at the time, uh, and uh, so, that was, so that was that. So then the decision was to replace or to upgrade the Skyhawk and the decision ultimately was taken to upgrade it because of the cost. Uh, and um, and so off we go into the Kahu phase of upgrading the aeroplane which uh, essentially involved um, the uh, ins- installation of a, of a state-of-the-art nav Attack system and re-winging the aeroplane which I know Des has already talked about. So the nav Attack system, this is a huge step change now. We've got a ring laser gyro system, a head-up display um, and a hands-on throttle and stick uh, system. So the the throttle is now covered in buttons that drive the radar and the various other systems, the, the countermeasure dispensing system, uh, as well as you know the you know the uh, some other uh, aspects. And uh, and the same on the throttle. The throttle is now uh, sorry the stick is now covered in, in buttons as well. So it was um, so flying the airplane all of a sudden became being competent in uh, in a, you know fairly high stress environment. Uh, uh, of being able to push the right button and get the right mode into the, into the head-up display or bring the weapon system that you want into the head-up display. So that was also part of the, the NavAttack system was the, was the head-up display. Uh, and um, I'll talk about I'll come back and talk about that in a minute because moving from... I've talked about this with the helicopter fraternity, moving from a, the Iroquois to the NH-90. Uh, I was using our experience of moving from the conventional A4 to the uh, aer- aeroplane that essentially was the same performance-wise, but it came with a radar and it came with a head-up display, so there's huge uh, areas of distraction when you're operating your plane at low level. Uh, so, yeah, touched on the radar. So what came with the uh, the upgrade was the APG-66 radar, which was the F-16 radar, uh, the uh, ALR-66 um, uh, radar warning system, and the ALE-39 uh, chaff and flare countermeasure dispensing system. So now we have a state-of-the-art fighter. Um, we can detect a threat because the radar warning system is going to, if we just program it uh, for the, the environment we're going into. So for example, deploying to uh, um, Australia or deploying to uh, Southeast Asia, we would get the um, avionics guys, the specialists, to program the radar warning system with the threats for the theater that we were going into. And on the radar warning um, receiver and the display in the, f- in, in, in the, uh, in the cockpit, uh, you could see a number come up and a, and a tone and you'd associate that number and a tone with a particular threat radar or, or friendly actually, um, and then you could react accordingly. So of course back in the conventional airplane you didn't have any of that. You just had mark one eyeball. So our navigation skills and our lookout were, were superb. Move into a nav- an airplane like this with a, that kind of nav attack system and now the lookout uh, starts to degrade a bit because all the information you need to know is in the in the head-up display. Um, and, uh, and of course the navigation skills, you've got a uh, um, a very accurate ring laser gyro that's getting you uh, the, to the next waypoint or in fact if you're running late you just step to the one the next waypoint after that and cut the corner and just follow the line follow the magenta line uh, so yeah so what that ha- what then happened is when we went to for example um, Malaysia where the visibility was a lot worse than New Zealand so hazy you know 5k vis guys running around at low level uh, the terrain awareness uh, wasn't as good as it should be. So when they were stepping to the next waypoint, um, all of a sudden, you know, what's the terrain? And that now that's not on the map that we've drawn. The lines we've drawn on the map. We still had a map, um, so etc. So there was a hazard right there. The uh, the head-up display was a, was a classic because you, you, there was a a HUD fixation phenomena where you tended to look in the HUD with the exclusion of looking out out the window as much, and that happened to me on at night, uh, one night, we, we did night flying every three or four months, um, typically Monday through Thursday night, first night, um, get airborne, go to the tanker, do a night refuel, come back into the circuit, do a few circuits, take current again at night, and then the next three nights would be um, tactical uh, flying. So the first wave gets seaborne and there's five aircraft in the first wave. So there was the tanker, but you can only have three on the tanker at night. So the first three go up uh, to the tanker, and I'm the fifth airplane, so I go into the circuit. And my, uh, the plan is I'll, go, I'll um, go up to the tanker when the first one comes back uh, into the circuit. So, get airborne in a moderately heavy aeroplane at night, haven't flown at night for three months. Get airborne on 09 at a hack, go downwind, everything's fine, set the known power. Go downwind, get to base turn, turn base, set the known power, come around the corner, looking in the HUD, everything's fine, and roll out in four reds 300 feet. And you're going, oh my god, right, go round. So, go round. Big wake up call. I hadn't been looking out the window, going around base turn. I just got, you know, looking in the HUD for uh, for the um, you know, keeping the airplane on speed. Um, so yeah, so that exactly is the, the one of the, 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 f- the problems with the HUD. But nevertheless, once you overcome all that, it's great. Um, same with the radar. The radar became a huge source of distraction at low level. So just talk about tactics for a moment. So what we've now got is an aeroplane with an F-16 radar. It's got a countermeasures dispensing system and it's got a radar warning system that can tell you when you're being targeted. So straight away, our tactics, we've become a lot more effective. Um, With the radar going at low level, if we were in an environment where we were able to have the radar going at low level, um, um, what you then had was you had a, a, a display unit uh, down here uh, that was displaying the, the radar picture. So that's fine, but when you're at uh, fifty feet running along, um, you, know, the, the poss- you know, looking down and getting distracted by the radar became quite a significant threat. Uh, but we trained for it and managed it. Um, so, the weapons that came with this upgrade were the. Uh, we still had the. Uh, we got rid of the Mark 81s, we had the Mark 82 500 pound bomb, but we then bought the laser kicks for them, so they became laser guided bombs. Um, we had the um, Maverick, um, so we got the AGM 65B and G, so that was the TB and the uh, imaging infrared Maverick, uh, and then the. Um, the, we still had well the rockets had become uh, CRV7s at that stage built in Canada very high speed very accurate uh, and um, we had the AIM9L. So the AIM9L was a very capable um, sidewinder. that had off bore sight capability, so you could lock a target um, off um, off bore sight, and it was slave to the radar. So when you acquired a target and locked it, the um, the seeker head of the missile would go to its field of view limit. And if in the HUD it would tell you that it was field of view limited, so you just had to keep turning in that direction and eventually it'll, it will would acquire off-bore side and give you a tone and, and ultimately a solution. So a uh, very, very good weapon had a great, it also had a very good fuse, so uh, it could take engaged targets head on. Uh, so um, we became a much different um, uh, entity with respect to um, when we were operating with the Australians when we were operating operating against them, so um, so that uh, that's kind of how the airplane ended up looking like, and it was very capable. Um, it still had the same performance, so we had a little. We we're a little bit limited with payload in terms of uh, thrust. So nine and a half thousand pound um, Pratt and Whitney engine. Um, so there was there was that issue, but other than that, it was it was quite capable. Um, the um, I'll talk about two squadron tactics in a minute, but the thing about the aim 9 uh, correction, the uh, AGM-65, we all of a sudden went and got into the game of having a standoff weapon, so we had, a, a, um, with the Maverick, a, a weapon you could deliver five miles away from the target and break away, rather than having to overfly the target. Uh, so the B and the G Maverick. So the, the TV Maverick was good, um, principally uh, it's a da- obviously daylight only. Uh, what came with that was the, um, the possibility of disorientation. So once again, you're looking heads down at the uh, the screen, which has the TV screen, and you're using the uh, the throttle, the the um, cursor on the throttle, to move the head of the um, t- of the Maverick over the target and then lock it, lock that target, and it would it would um, it would lock the contrast of uh, that it was seeing, and off you'd go once you had a solution, push the pull the trigger and off it would go. Um, so when you were moving the aeroplane um, and looking head down, it, it, there were issues. Uh, and then the same thing at night, and the wonderful thing about the AIM-9 a correction: The AGM-65G, the infrared one, was all of a sudden we had a real weapon for night flying. So we were able to uh, to to do night strike instead of what we had been doing previously, which was having to illuminate a target with flares. Um, so yeah, so that was great. Um, the G was a principally a ship anti-shipping weapon. had a um, had a mode that uh, recognised the infrared signature of a ship. And it also had a shaped charge, so it was quite an effective weapon. Um, And the release point was around five or six miles away. So then you could release and get away. Um, Right. So that's kind of how it it shaped up. So now, um, 1991, and... um, the Australian uh, and Australians—they'd um, lost the um, A4 capability. They had no organic fighter uh, capability, and um, they were told by the RBLF that they were um, going to support them because, uh, principally, the, the, the DDGs and the FFGs and the Australian Navy were air defence picket ships. That was their role in the um in the fleet and so they had to practice uh and uh, um anti-air uh uh, constantly and that theoretically was going to be done by um the RAAF f 18s unfortunately uh fleet support was given a priority of one out of ten by the RAAF, and they um, were very reluctant to, um, to to give them as many hours as, the, as were needed so that was a problem for um, for the Australian Navy so ultimately they got into an arrangement with us and we um, we sent two squadron over there so the a4s were principally operated by 75 squadron um, uh, but two squadron was formed in 86 and as a as a there's the OCU squadron um, and uh, ultimately they did the test and evaluation on the Kahu jet. And, um, bit, but when that was all done and dusted and the airplanes were rolling out of Woodburn, um, then uh, 75 squadron became fully operational again and two squadron deployed to Australia, to Nauru to the Naval Air Station. So there are only two defence agreements that, that New Zealand has that are actually binding, that actually commit us to assist. Um, so, question, what are they? Does anybody know? ANZUS was not one of them. ANZUS and most defence uh, agreements are actually d- just an agreement to consult. There's no commitment. So, uh, five power defence arrangement is one. So, the FPDA, the, that's Australia, New Zealand, UK, um, Malaysia, and Singapore. Uh, if there is a threat to the Malaysian Peninsula, that is a um, an agreement where we ha- we are bound to uh, assist. Exactly. The other one is the defence of Northern Australia, uh, and and there is a defence r- uh, relationship and an agreement with Australia around that. It's probably a little bit out of date, but it, it still exists. Anyway, notwithstanding that, very clearly Australia is by far our most significant defence partner, and uh, so the uh, the um, uh, under the auspices uh, of a of a um, uh, an agreement called closer defence relations, as opposed to closer economic relations with Australia, closer defence relations. Two squadron was sent over there. So uh, there was a thousand hours of flying we did of navy flying, um, uh, and based in Nara and. Um, That became 1300 ultimately in the next iteration of that agreement. Um, One of the things that a lot of the Australian senior officers didn't understand is that New Zealand paid for half of that flying. Because it was mutually beneficial, and and I'll cover that in a minute as to what we got out of it. But uh, as far as the navy were concerned, they loved it. They had their A4s back. We were at now we only had six aeroplanes there, but the two squadron um, was given high priority, so we always had. Um, Um, call, if we like, as it were, on on any available spares at Ahākia. It wasn't too bad, too difficult to support the squadron from Ahākia, and and it was just a wonderful uh, experience to go over there as CO. So I was very fortunate to go over as the second uh, CO. Uh, by which time the air force had worked out and everyone had worked out that this was a, a desirable posting so um, there were people clamouring to go over there on the next rotation so our warrant officer uh jeff ford hand-picked uh, these wonderfully resourceful um, group of engineers uh, of sergeants and flight sergeants and corporals uh, and so when I got, I was the last of our the second group to get there um, by the time I got there they were well established this second group and they was just a brilliant set of people, very resourceful very capable, high calibre people so it was just an amazing experience being a CO of a, a fighter squadron a uh, thousand miles away from the next senior officer um, um, running around Australia and we deployed all over the show. We chased the ships over to uh, to the west, so we'd be in Perth quite often, we'd be up in Darwin, up in Brisbane, up at Amberley. We um, went to Williamtown quite a lot because the RAAF used us as adversary air quite a lot. So we'd be supporting, um, so some of that thousand hours became as ADF hours, we were being you know, Australian Defence Force hours, they, some of that were soaked up with um, training uh, ground control intercept controllers, um, or just doing some work with F 18s. So that was the that was great flying, uh, and the other thing about two squadron, as opposed to 75, my tour where I'd come from was a uh, flight commander 75, so I had three and a half years. There it was great, but 75 squadron was, you know, held the operational um, mantle, if you like. We we we, we had a broad thing, a range of uh, of mainly air to ground that we that we did, um, but over at two squadron had a wonderful focus was do a good job for the Navy and train Skyhawk pilots. That's all we had to do. And uh, it was just wonderful. Um, so it taught me a bit about how important focus is in an organization. Um, so we, um, we sent our young guys, that come from the Mackie at that stage, they'd done a pilot's course, go to the Mackie, uh, do 18 months or so of consolidation on the Mackie and then go over to um, Two Squadron and do their conversion and uh, they would do a, a c- close to six months it would take to get the uh, guy from start to finish through, uh, mainly because of the, um, the, the requirement to do the Navy f- the flying. But in the meantime, these guys are really in the thick of it. They're, um, you know, they're, they're um, watching all this going on. Um, so they do their six-month conversion course, and then they'll stay for another six months of consolidation as a bog rat on the squadron um, doing uh, fleet support flying. Uh, or this F-18 work, in fact a number of the missions we did, you'd be running into a ship uh, or a fleet of ships that were being um, defended by F-18s as well. So they the ships were controlling the F-18s, so we had to get through the F-18s to get to the ship, that kind of thing. Um, So quite advanced flying, and and so these guys were then going to 75 Squadron, having done all this. So a brand new boggy turning up on 75, it had a wonderful um, uh, tactical uh, introduction. We were back uh, before that I got to 2 Squadron, I'd been the flight, as I say, flight commander at 75. So we were up in Malaysia, I'll just tell you this little war story. We were up in Malaysia and we were doing the air defence exercise. We were based in Kwantan, um, and uh, because of the nature of the FPDA, uh, the RAF had sent out the F1 tornado for the exercise. So they were, they were defending, they were doing a lot of the air defence, as were the Aussies with the F-18. So anyway, um, we we're running into a target. We we're attacking Gong Kedak, which was an airfield to the north of Qanta, uh that had been defended with um, a certain uh, surface-to-air missiles, and that was our target. We we're running, in, so there's a pair of us. And um, uh, next thing you know, the radar warning system goes off, and we've got an F1. Uh, we're being locked by one of these F1s. So um, we uh, we reacted to that. We did a turn at low level. Put out some chaff, then we put out some flares when they got a bit close. We saw them, did some low-level manoeuvring, which was actually technically not allowed. We weren't allowed to turn more than 180 degrees before fight was called off. However, we got into it with these two uh, F ones, and and my wingman got a shot uh, on the. Um, on the, one of these F-1s and called a, uh, a FOX-2, which is a, um, a heat-seeking missile kill. Uh, and a valid, a valid kill. We looked at his hard footage afterwards. Absolutely valid kill. So, um, so we kind of chewed these guys up and we carried on, on our way. So I go to the debrief for the ADEX a- 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 at Quantum, and sitting next to me is the wing commander from the F-1 squadron. And he said to me... Um, hey, uh, we, we bumped in a couple of A4, your A4s, uh, you know, he was one of the pilots. Uh, and, um, yeah, we did some manoeuvring, you know, because the um, Malaysians and the Singaporeans had Skyhawks, so they didn't know who they were looking at. Next thing you know, Chaff and Flare gets deployed. Next thing you know, um, they've got an AIM-9L coming their way. And um, so they were quite impressed with all that, uh, what they'd seen. And I said, yeah... Um, did you realise, well you don't realise, but the wingman who took that shot was the most junior pilot on our squadron. He was, <laughs> that's Jimmy Turner. And he, at that stage, had just come off course. And, um, and so that was kind of a real good story about what we got from, so he'd come from Two Squadron. You see, he come been over at Two Squadron and done his course. Done all that tactical flying with the Navy. Had the radar been running around at low level. Had the radar warning system going off. Maneuvered at low level. Put chaff out. Put flare out to defeat that, etc. So now we're in an operational environment, and uh, you know, so you know, so he was quite impressed with that. Um, But so that's the mutually beneficial aspect of Two Squadron. We got a lot out of it. They got a lot out of it. so, uh, so now we come to the, I guess, the point where now we've got to look at the uh, the replacement of the A4. The um, decision was taken clearly it couldn't be re- couldn't be uh, made to go any further. So then, as we're aware, the F16 uh, came into the frame and we, w- we made an offer we couldn't refuse. Um, the the, the t- at the time, I will just touch on this briefly. Um, there was a discussion about whether or not we should go for the F18 or the F-16. And my view, and I've actually run this by the new um, Assistant Chief of Defence Force capability, uh, is um, that uh, with respect to Australia, uh, uh, Australia is, our, as I mentioned, our most important defence partner. So we have to continue to be relevant to Australia. Therefore there was a commonality versus a complementary argument the commonality argument went we should have f eighteens because they've got f18s and we can um, we can uh, save a lot of money with in cost and training and engineering um, by by having f eighteens uh, it's a fantastic aeroplane you know so looking at the combined orbit of, of the two countries it's it's the right, right way to go my view at the time was that we should have F16s in other words we should continue to stay relevant to australia by having equipment niche capability that they don't have like the skyhawk so the F16 was air to ground capability that they didn't have so that way i i pushed the the complementary argument and and ultimately went that we went that way and that Arguments still exist when we're looking at uh, defence capability. You know, When we're looking at a Herc replacement, um, um, P3s are a wee bit different. But um, So I, I believe that um, relevance, being continued to be relevant to Australia is very important and having niche capability they don't have. Therefore, now the air combat force is gone uh, um, and that's another story. Um, when you actually ask the question, it's asked of me quite regularly, should we have got rid of the Skyhawk um, or... Um, you know uh, would we ever resurrect anything like that well the answer is no because it's too expensive and the skills are gone but um, you know the the complementary equipment that could do something in that along those lines would be drone technology that's where i reckon we should go if we were ever serious about uh, offensive air again Interestingly, um, in my um, normal nine-to-five day job, uh, I was in New Zealand. I was working in corporate for a little while, and I was in a function uh, in the um, before the election where National was restored, and uh, John Key, who was the shadow spokesman on tourism, was doing a, a speaking at a breakfast um, at Air New Zealand on um, on tourism. So he was wh- whipped around the room uh, by our government affairs guy, and. Uh, And I was introduced to him, but he, um, so Rick Osborne brings him over and he says, this is John Mathewson, former Skyhawk pilot, rather than John Matthewson, CEO executive analyst. Anyway, and so John Key said to me, oh, oh, should we have got rid of the Skyhawk? That was his question, and uh, he was expecting the standard, you know, no, of course not, we shouldn't have got rid of them, you know, and I said, well, Mr. Key, the high level issue here is our system of government that will allow one person to get rid of our most potent military capability. <laughs> he went, oh, you're right, <laughs> and, he, and he walked off. <laughs> All right. Okay, anyway, look, I've got a video, but it's got uh, quite a bit of uh, it's the A4, and I, um, it's all about the A4. It, it kind of highlights everything I've talked about with respect to the you know, the uh, the flying we did and, and, and ended up doing with the, uh, the new aeroplane. So let's get that going, then I'll take a few questions.
1: At this point, I've cut out the audio of that video, but you can watch it on the show page. So go to the Wings Over New Zealand show page for this episode, or to our Facebook page. And you should be able to see it.
2: That video's on uh
5: it's on Facebook.
2: So just put an A4 on Facebook to be able to watch the rest of that. It's another uh, ten minutes or so of that.
5: Um just conclude with one little war story. Um so I was uh flight lead of a free ship, uh which we, we were working out to go to quantum Uh what go away's in several stages, so we could do the combat workout phase and uh and, and other aspects of the have to find before we deployed it's sort of like uh rule that end of the exit, was kind of a thing we worked up. to. Anyway, uh, Wingman goes US on the start, so it's just a pair of us. We go out um, into the ranges uh, in the Wairetta. it has been a massive big storm go through the country, and and we were struggling, the air-confer was behind the because of the weather. So, um, anyway, myself and Scott Armour, we're out the the back of um, uh, the they're close to the coast and uh, he has blown up and what had happened was the, well, we believe happened was the um, uh, so the, disrespect to engineering, uh, there, but the engineering, of engineering, about the work on the wing, had had a little bit uh, strong inside the wing and from time to time, some of that would make its way through to the, to the fuel system so the aeroplane had a uh, wing fuel that was in order it was the, uh, up the, the tanks, then the wings, then the fuselage tanks uh, and the, um, uh, the first stage back was the, uh, from the experimental engine. So they had a little kind of thing we call a dummy valve, on, a bit more complicated than that. We put a little swap in it from time to time as it sailed from the top, um, and it wouldn't allow to fuel. But we had a low fuel warning light, and so when that came on, the car came on. It's a pity that's low fuel warning light. We would just go and bypass and send the fuel another on way to the RTS back. So those two systems, it looked like those two things happened uh and the local So he and ultimately um, uh, basically to you know, I'll out. So I'm in that right next door, and uh, he's going down, and uh, he's trying to revise it to no avail, and five thousand feet of wrong for so he can't get out. Um, so at that stage, I was I was in and dodged just to sort of get uh, a mark on the economy's the position. Um, and um, there's been this massive storm going through, so uh, you can imagine when the sea stuff was like, what happened? It came out of Europe, out of the aircraft. Um, there's been that also failed, and it, it, um, it disappeared. So there's supposed to be a survival tank underneath it. Um, there's nothing, it's just him shooting. And when shoot. my head, he's going out to sea, and he's like, why now? He's stuff, so it's quite What do I see from my as it turned out, the steering ones had been shipped around and he landed on a strip of beach as wide as the screen. And we looked up, unfortunately, because of the storm, um, Lucas down at, at, at Barney was sitting there redoing with the airplane running. And so they had a helicopter like down at Barney ready to go and just really straight up the rock. Anyway, I've got plenty more of those, but I won't talk about those. <laughs> There's great characters on the A4. Very fine. Uh, so you can yeah, come out of So, your question? just the I a was of the and to to of and we've got a tank on the bottom of the I'm pretty sure it on the way out. that. was a great area for low flying because it was much around over here, and, so we, and it was close to the heart, so we were up and down. There. I the just I
3: I I'm <laughs> <sure>. <laughs>
5: <laughs> <laughs> So as the squeeze came on fine, you know, what happened like, with our radius of extra amount of the shrunk, you get know, as much activity as you possibly could less out. So, you know, you, know, you know, those kind of areas were quite common for our uh, time. <laughs> what was your success rate on the you know, number two slide? But that was, you know, typically uh, so, we had a range of different serials. We had some of them just the like tracking serials, depending on what stage the ship was at, whether it was a new crew or new ship. Um, but quite often we'd be doing a workout program. So, that's what they've got the uh, operational evaluation people on board, and it's full on. Um, so, it's, it's radars off ponds, no so yeah, it's full uh, on tactical. Um, and we, we did okay, I mean we, you uh, mean we need to in the side system It's the surface of the system that they've very through, um, So it just went up into a certain moment, this road and came down on the target that that um, point was a great hard footage of when one is at the end of released, It was a block up in when the Navy was going, the Australian Navy was going to the Gulf War We were over in Winningtown, we were in the U.S. and they combined the two to work up on the two, sitting in the Pajamate City and the Pajamate camera with the set um, they cleaning with the sun's deployment. So we would do our mission um, over here and then we'd go and do another mission in the same sort of, go and do a run-off of the two ships that were being worked up and get the job. And when I saw us, there was a live warranty, there was pop-up in the signals. Um, <laughs> the signal tracking, and there sort of the was some great hard footage of Al re running in at low level. And the stand comes off the deck with the equipment that was running like the target in the drone way over here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, if we got the ship end up, that would mean we have got drift, basically. If you got you, you to if you, if you cross the ship, you'd have it pointing at you, or pointing away from you, if they weren't sidewalking. Um, so, we just very quickly on the tactics we used, just to illustrate what we were doing. Um, that, by the way, is a photograph It's like, oh, I've pinched it out of your rockets, and i them back out of your rockets. It's actually my photo, but if, if this is Skyrim 01. Uh, and that is frigate zero one is the complete um, flagship of the of the fleet and the, this just taken in the break between the exercise we're doing in, in uh, the West. Uh, so the CEO of this ship was the, uh, the captain when he was the, US, the uh, fleet commander, like his Ryan Mother. So I gave him this photo of to well, uh and probably in the same copy was my death that we saw him, and the title of it is nothing like a bit of one on one three zero one and it's symbolized I see kind of the relationship that the had the major design. so um, we would have the ship here, we'd have a known position here and we'd have an aircraft coming in from kind of places of four different components of the four ship. And the first aircraft that would be targeted with the radar wanted system would turn away and turn on the beam. And then if it was still off, we would put the charge out and if it was still off he would then depress. Meanwhile everyone else is running in. And then the next guy gets targeted, et And as soon as that breaks off on him, then he would turn back. And we just continually do this, working away beam, our way back, and just try to try run to, um, uh, over, um, you know, just max them out. Yeah. Um, so they would get two or three of us, typically, and one would get three. Um, you know, uh, yeah. And we were trying to get to the five-mile point where we were notionally with less than average and then would carry on as the missile to overflow the ship so the blanks are um, in place for record to for the target. Was anything learned from the Argentinians from the Falklands War? Uh, about fusing bombs. Well, well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yep, yeah, uh, yeah, there would have been actually. They, they were releasing them real low, the and they did have a fuse on them and their fuses were reversed. That was the primary um, one. They were, I mean, technically knew the airplane was quite heavy, so it was very so we were running here in 50 which the which um, is the F-1870A1A1A1 from 200km. And the other thing, uh, it's been a sedan. This airplane is terrific. The A4 is terrific. low-flying airplane. Uh, it's a 27 wingspan. And I don't know if you noticed in some of that footage, you know, there's some, I don't know what it is, there's two or three inches of waterproof glass. And it's fairly, really uh, really a, a kind of, a portable shape of uh, wingspan. With a lot of metal on it. A, it could take a burn on the nose quite a bit. There's a book here, it's actually the Sky book, it's lovely, it's a great read. I've got it here, I've got a couple of bookmarks of interest. One of them is um, a, a picture of, um, and this is why the, the Americans love this earth You've got your home, uh, it, it had various um, ways of design can take bad damage. So Nigel Mills, 420 knots out of the Coromandel, it's again up 15 feet, quite a massive and hits down by his right knee, slides along the fuselage, goes in between the engine intake, the split of plate between the engine intake and the fuselage, goes straight through the inside of the engine intake, the unbelievable damage, all sorts of metal goes down the engine, then goes through the other side of the intake, then travels down the outside of the engine, taking that hydraulic system and electrical system, and it's like a, just like a bullet straight down the aeroplane and then exits the potato, and then exits out the back. So he uh, got a fan on the round of um, the You know, if you look at the photo in there, you'll see that he uh, didn't believe that the airplane would be gone. Um, the engine design, be yeah. So yeah. Um, cool. Thanks very much. Thank you.
1: That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.